Hey listeners of Lunchtime Movie Review, you are about to listen to the original podcast review of For Your Eyes Only, reviewed and recorded on October 3rd of 2011, back when Lunchtime Movie Review really just had begun. This was the first James Bond film we reviewed, and as you're about to hear, a little bit dated because we make references to Daniel Craig's age in 2011, but this was long before male bonding had been created over on Movie House Memories, where we're actually reviewing all the James Bond films. And obviously, I was the only one. I was the man standing alone, the only James Bond fan amongst Matt, Jason, and Greg who did not appear to be James Bond fans at the time. So sit back and enjoy Lunchtime Movie Review's review of 1981's For Your Eyes Only with Roger Moore. Listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com, and we are the children of the 80s. Welcome to Lunchtime Movie Review. I'm Matt. I'm Jason. I'm Greg. And I'm Patrick. And we review movies from our childhood. Sometimes we like it, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we agree, but most of the times we don't. Regardless, we always have an opinion. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Seiko's H357-5040 wristwatch, now with a scrolling LED message bar, a watch so easy to use a grandpa could use it. Seiko means quality. Patrick, what's our movie this week? This week's movie is For Your Eyes Only, or as I like to refer to it, is Grandpa Goes Skiing, Diving, and Climbing. <laughs> it was released in June 26, 1981, and it was the 12th in the James Bond series and the fifth film with Roger Moore. This bond is for your eyes only. The film begins with Bond visiting the grave of his dead wife, Tracy, who was killed in the sole George Lazenby film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, I thought she died of old age. No, yeah, you would think she would because Bond goes on forever. And that's about 12 years before, right? The movie was made in 1969, and the grave actually says that she's killed in 1969, which is one of the few films that actually dates Bond to a certain period in time. It was one of the few times in the franchise that a film refers back to events in a previous film other than having continuing characters that show up in each individual film. He's suddenly called back to his office, which politely sends a helicopter to pick him up, but it's all a clever ruse by Dr. Evil. I mean, Ernest Stavo Blofeld. Blofeld has an elaborate way of trying to kill Bond, which instead of just crashing the helicopter... And for all the non-nerds out there, the Blofeld is what Dr. Evil from Austin Powers was was based off, yeah? It is based off... The, his look is based off the Donald Pleasance character from You Only Live Twice. And the Persian cat. And, well, in the Persian cat, the, the sound of his voice is supposed to be Lorne Michaels from Saturday Night Live. Okay. Blofeld kills the pilot, has a remote control on the helicopter, flies Bond all over the place, you know, basically threatening to kill him, and then flies him into a building before Bond takes over the helicopter, comes back, picks up Blofeld with one of the uh, landing arms of the helicopter, and dumps him down a chimney. 
since we've already made two jokes about it, I thought this would probably be an appropriate time to talk about Roger Moore's age. This whole pre-title sequence was originally written because they expected to be recast Bond at this point in time, and they were going to refer back to his previous adventures while introducing the Bond character. To bridge the gap. Um, But then Roger Moore decided to come back probably for money. It's either this or the nursing home. When this movie was released, Bond, or excuse me, not Bond, Roger Moore was 54 years old, which I went back and did the research. Uh, Sean Connery, when he did his last official Bond film, he was 41. Brosnan was 49. Timothy Dalton was 43. uh, Lazenby was 30. And Daniel Craig is 43 at this point in time in the series. So Roger Moore was by far the oldest James Bond at that point in time. And I think that's kind of a distracting point in the film. Yeah, the liver spots aren't sexy. No, they're not. <laughs> There's a certain point when all your actresses in the film are, you have the uh, M- M- Lena Havelock character, she's 24, B.B. Doll is 23, and then the Countess is 33. She's the oldest female actress in the film, but it's still... And the one he bangs. Well, he bangs two, but... Oh, that's right. Initially. Yeah, he bangs her during the course of the film. So, But that's a 21-year difference. I think it's kind of a, a major distraction point, and I, I think they should have recast it rather but, than... But, but Blofeld being in a wheelchair makes sense, that Roger Moore would want to kill his body but be able to preserve the chair to steal it for him later. Okay. And, and let's face it, Roger Moore did not age as well as Pierce Brosnan. No, no. no. I mean, Pierce Brosnan's a handsome man. Fuck him. So. <laughs> But no, I think uh, Brosnan much, held up much better, but he didn't even get to that age, although right. Brosnan wanted to do more Bond films. so And Roger Moore wasn't done. No, he did two more after this, so it, it gets more even like worse. Five, like five years later. I think it was four, four years later was A View to a Kill. Give Patrick a chance to correct me by 12 months. He does octogenarian and pussy after this, right? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, after that sequence, we go into the opening title sequence with Sheena Easton, uh, basically a Sheena Easton video without Prince for a change. Um, I know how Matt feels about these long James Bond title sequences. Hate, hate them. Terrible, terrible, no, terrible. Silhouettes of naked women is not okay with you. Ah, get to the freaking movie. Just I agree. It. It's bad music with yeah. shadowy figures of, I guess they're supposed to be naked women which I'd rather see not in silhouette. Right. If you're going to show the naked women, then show the naked women. And at least make me sit through the music. The film picks up again with the British spy boat, St. George's, sinking off the coast with, of Greece with the British ATAC device, which is a device that can tr- used by the Ministry of Defense to communicate with and coordinate the British Navy Polaris submarines and their ballistic missiles, which they kind of throw away in a line and move on. Just the, that it's important. That's all that matters is important. This is basically the story of the of For Your Eyes Only, is it's a race between the British and the Soviets or someone acting on behalf of the Soviets to get the, the Cubans. ATAC. Well, Cubans are involved in it, but to get the ATAC system so that they can have, a, have access to it. So the British, of course, would send in James Bond at this point in time. No. No one wanted to notice that? They didn't send in Bond. They send in a, a Marine. No, we noticed. We were waiting to... <laughs> For you to finish your summary before we go to all this shit that didn't make sense. <laughs> the marine archaeologist, uh, Sir Timothy Havelock, he and his wife are immediately killed by a Cuban hitman, Hector Gonzalez, but, and this is witnessed by... Right, because if you want to send a person to capture the, a vital computer, something that, that could prevent the outbreak of World War III, you're going to send an archaeologist. Yes, a marine archaeologist. Well, I thought if I was going to kill that person... Also, I would do it with a plane with a hidden machine gun instead of just rowing up to the boat at night and shooting them up close. 
Anyways, uh, they're killed in front of their daughter, Milena, who is played by a French actress model, Carol Bouquet. Is that how you pronounce it? Also known as Blue Steel. <laughs> Why is that? Her only expression is Blue Steel by Calvin Klein. Uh, this is when the British finally send in Bond to find out who killed the Havelocks and, uh, and who hired Gonzalez to kill them. He goes to, I guess it's Cuba. I don't, I wasn't. With the snow? No, 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 no. This Greece. Is, they go to Greece. Is it Greece? Yeah, I thought Greece. they go to they go to Spain and then. Oh, is it Spain? Yeah, well, that's okay. Spain, not Greece. I suppose they are in Greece. I I don't know. So, they're in the they're somewhere. They're, they're somewhere with hairy women. Yeah, there's some place different where Gonzalez's villa is. Bond gets captured quite easily. Basically, he's allowed to escape when Milena shoots Gonzalez with a crossbow, uh, which then involves a car chase that is basically a used for comedy in this particular film is this a comedy because i'm thinking this could have been written as one all the roger moore james bond films are somewhat comedy they're but so. not intentionally no I mean, the intentionally parts, the parts that they're doing for comedy i get what they're trying to do but these parts that you're talking about are not for comedy no i think the car chase was there was supposed to be a lot of comedy involved in that it's still a car chase but it know, gives a it, chance it, for roger moore to be uh witty which yes. is what old men have to do to attract females uh, after the car chase, uh, Bond then begins tracking Emil Leopold Locke, who is the guy he sees at Gonzales paying off Gonzales for the killing of the Havelocks. He goes to Italy to track down Locke, and he encounters a Greek intelligence informant. Uh, Christatos, Christatos informs Bond that, that Locke works for the smuggler named Colombo, um, who is Christatos' former organized crime partner. Christatos introduces Bond to B.B. Dahl, a blonde figure skater, who happens to be nowhere. The, yeah, who happens to be the only woman in the world that James Bond will not sleep with in the history of the Bond movies. And she throws herself at him. Oh, absolutely throws herself at right. him. Doesn't even have to rape her. Right. It's kind of strange. This Bond character, especially Roger Moore, who sleeps with everything in every movie, kind of turns her down. He does have standards, and we found him. <laughs> Bond escorts BB to watch a biathlon race and is attacked by Locke's men on motorcycles and skis which leads to one of the few action sequences where Roger Moore is replaced by a series of different stuntmen that are obviously not Roger Moore. That wasn't Roger Moore? No, it was not. Isn't that Eric Kriegler, the world-famous biathlete? I mean, really? Like, like he's Michael Jordan in the Alps. You know, everyone, oh, my gosh, that's Eric Kriegler. Bond is able to escape and heads off to Corfu to meet with Molina and to pursue Colombo. Uh, while there, he meets with Cristados, who points out Colombo at a local casino. Bond leaves the casino with Columbo's date, the Countess Lisselle von Schleif. Who's got pretty nice tits. She does. That is Pierce Brosnan's actual late wife, Cassandra Harris. Oh, good on you, Pierce Brosnan. I would rather f*** your wife than you now. <laughs> She's dead. Oh, She's shit. <laughs> I take that back. When she was alive, I would have rather f***ed her than you. Now, not so much. Uh, Bond hopes to get information from her, so he does it by bouncing her on Grandpa's knee. Oh, wait. No, he sleeps with her. <laughs> Which might be bouncing her on Grandpa's knee. That's possible. Might throw That's it back. That's what they call it. <laughs> the next morning, Locke and his men attempt to kill Bond and the Countess while they walk on the beach. With doom buggies. <laughs> <laughs> when the motorcycles don't work, we need to go to doom buggies. Okay, we need yep. four wheels. Uh, Locke is able to run down the Countess in his doom buggy. Uh, but Bond is able to get away due to the help of Columbo's men showing up. And, and that he can hear them driving up from two miles away. <laughs> so. But somehow this moron of a woman decides, I'm not going to stay up here on the ridge where it's safe. I'm going to run back down and she gets splatted. That's a nice little scene, though, when they show her getting hit by the car by the doom buggy. 
Yeah, the stunt woman actually got hurt during that scene, so that's probably why it's really good. Bond then meets Columbo, played by Topol, who tries desperately to break out of his typecast role. Tradition! For his, Tradition! For his obviously famous role of... Tevia. On Fiddler on the Roof. No, Zarkov from Flash Gordon. What the hell are you talking about, Fiddler on the Roof? He was much like... better in Flash Gordon. <laughs> Nobody eats nuts like Topol. <laughs> oh, my God. Columbo reveals the Bond, the big twist of the film, that Christatos is actually the one working for the KGB to require the ATAC system, not Columbo. Right, because Topol tells him, on the one hand, I'm a smuggler. On the other hand, I don't smuggle in heroin. That's my Tevye impression. That's pretty good. It's all about balance. <laughs> Next week, musical theater. Columbo proves to Bond that he is on his side by raiding one of Cristado's warehouses, and in one of the best scenes, I think, of the film, he uh, Bond kills Locke by kicking his car off a cliff. Um, I wanted to stop and talk about this scene, because there's actually an interesting story about this, where Roger Moore didn't want to shoot the scene that particular way. He wanted Because he would throw his hip out? <laughs> Potentially. Because Roger Moore really is a pussy. Well, Roger Moore wanted to, the car to go over the cliff because he threw the little pen, the little dove pen into the car, and the weight would cause it to go over. The director and the writer wanted him to kick over the car, killing him basically very cold-bloodedly, and Roger Moore didn't want to do that. He said James Bond would do that, but Roger Moore's James Bond wouldn't do that. Because Roger Moore's a pussy. The Roger Moore morality <laughs> seeps into right. for your eyes only. It is not proper to kill defenseless men. Now, raping a 23-year-old woman, on the other hand. No, I just thought it was kind of an interesting take. I mean, James Bond is licensed to kill, kills people throughout the entire Bond series, even in the Roger Moore films, and he has a problem with kicking this car over the cliff with this guy who's killed... Who's uh, already killed people. Yeah, he's already killed people, uh, another British agent in uh, over in Italy, and it just seems kind of weird that is he... Is this the dropped... guy that killed the Countess? Yeah, this is the guy this who killed the Countess. Lock, right? Right. Yeah. But that could have been an accident, because it just I mean, he ran her, her over with the dune buggy. Oof. I'm glad they left it the way... It, they shot it both ways, and then they put it in kind of a combination of both, but he did kick over the car. After killing Locke, Bond meets up with Molina and, using her dad's records, take a, takes a submarine and finds a St. George's. Yeah, eventually, after going through the Alps and then raiding the warehouse, Bond decides, wait a minute, we should have checked your dad's records to see if he ever located the ATEC. 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 That is what you want from a Secret Service there's a, agent. There's a parrot in this film. Yeah, he decides that a, an hour and a half into this. It's Blue Steel's parrot, right? Right. But there's a parrot in this film. I was certain the parrot was going to tell them where it was always you're foreshadowing yeah you're foreshadowing after a brief underwater sh struggle with aquaman they return to Molina's ship with the atac not very quickly though because after he has underwater struggle with aquaman they have submarine battle uh, and they then a, they return to the ship yeah, they have a brief submarine battle that's really kind of uneventful but uh when they get back to the ship christados is there and he's killed all Molina's crew he uh, takes the ATAC and ties up Bond and Milena and attempts to kill them by dragging them behind his yacht. But they are able to escape by out-muscling a yacht and snapping the rope. Well, they, they tied it around some coral. Well, they tied it around totally some coral. Totally makes sense. The rope would still pull. On totally it. makes sense, Patrick. Interesting that this is actually a scene from a, a different book, Live and Let Die. It's a, kind of the climactic scene in that book, but they didn't use it in that film, so they decided to use it in this film. Yeah, it was climactic in the same way Roger Moore's climactic. It never pops. It's hip-hops. Bond, Molina, and Columbo are uh, then directed by Molina's parrot, 
Max to St. Cyril's where Christodos is hiding out waiting to turn over the ATAC to the KGB. Didn't see that one coming. Uh, with the help of Columbo's men, Bond is able to climb a sheer cliff and penetrate the mountain fortress. A battle ensues, at which time Christados tries to flee to the arriving KGB with ATAC. Bond's able to stop him, but not before the KGB get there. To avoid turning over the ATAC, Bond throws it over the cliff, smashing against the rocks, I guess symbolizing how the balance of power has been restored. And the KGB just goes home. Yeah. Well, there's no point. Ah, you got me, sucker. taunt, comrade. There's, there's no point in shooting him. So. Well played, Mr. Bond. I'm out. KGB out. Uh, what I thought was the cheesiest portion of the film, the film oh, ends. Oh. This point. Yeah, this no. is the cheesiest yeah, portion. Yeah, I think this is the cheesiest. Right, when you have it. the Margaret Thatcher lookalike. Oh, yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> okay, so. Talking, talking to, to the parrot. The, talking to him, basically talking to the parrot and having the parrot say, give us a kiss, give us a kiss, and Bond and... Uh, Ew, Mr. Bond. <laughs> Bond. My teeth just fell out. <laughs> Bond leaves a radio watch with the parrot and goes and gives Melina her bath before bed, and then the film ends. Thank God. I, ironically, I fell asleep in exactly the same portion as, of Patrick's uh, summary as I did in the film. It's a, it's a long movie, man. I kept thinking Roger Moore can't live this long. Any minute he's going to drop dead, and I'm I'm free. I'm not a huge James Bond fan, just generally of the franchise. I'm a fan of certain films. I really like Casino Royale, probably my favorite, and a couple of the Sean Connery uh, movies. But I'm not just clamoring for any James Bond film. But this was an absolute pain to get through. It was a terrible, terrible film. What was terrible about it? There was no story. The story that you you know I was thinking about this. We talked about Footloose before. And how it's uh, in, in Rocky Four, where it's just a bunch of musical video sequences, right, paired together. This is just a bunch of awkward chase scenes thrown in together with no real coherent story behind it to tie it. Every something that happened, and I tried to rack my where, where are they again? I was trying to track what was happening, and then I realized I just don't care. I don't. I don't care what's happening here. And that's not typical of all Bond films. So I'm not just saying I don't care about James Bond films or anything that doesn't happen in America. I don't. I don't care about which. There can be an element of that, but but I just don't care about what looks like a manual typewriter that they're going after. It was just, that was high tech shit in the 1980s <laughs> that somehow is impervious to salt water. To salt water, and then he ends up breaking it, so it's of no use to anyone. The Russians <laughs> never had it. But to the British, that was a pretty important thing, and and Bond makes a decision. All right, well, I'll just break it after I've all these people have died. And then the KGB was like, wah, wah, instead of shooting the secret agent who destroyed your. Well, they live by the same moral code as Roger Moore, apparently. Well, there's no point to killing him. Sure, there would be, because the next time this thing gets lost, I won't be dealing with 007. They couldn't think of a creative way to kill him. Actually, it's 0070 at this point. I mean, one of the problems I had was they they introduced the identograph oh, into your eyes only, and the identograph is a is a machine like a computer where you go in and you type in a description of a person you saw, and it it matches that description you typed in with actual pictures. Blonde hair, Caucasian, lip size. They just he starts describing just ge- very general, non specific. Features. But the identograph is behind locked doors of the most secret area of, I guess, the, the Ministry of Defense. So where they're, all their high-tech gadgets are, you walk through that area to another secure door to get to the identograph, which is the same thing as a composite sketch artist or a, 
a notebook full of mugshots that would be in any police station across the United States. This is their secured high-tech area. It was more cartoon than computer. It was. My problem with that scene, and it drove me nuts, because that scene, not unlike our description of it in the podcast, takes like five or six minutes to get through. Whereas they could have just handed a, a picture, somebody could have gotten a snap of him and fed it to a computer and it spits out the name like they do in every TV show and the, the little digital pixelation where they get, this is who that is, right? Identification. They could have done what they did in six minutes in 30 seconds. And that's why this film is so long. And it could have been cut down. This film could have been an hour and 30 minutes and would have been much better. The story wouldn't have been any better, but it would have been shorter. But what was the, why, why all this, the snow? I thought that was really awkward. Let's just out of nowhere go to, uh, this Olympic training facility. Wait, before they look at the notes from the Jacques right. Cousteau character of what he might have found. They were already there. They could have just gone bypassed that whole part. So why go to Italy in order to do all these different Olympic events? That was to draw in the American audience after their triumphant Lake Placid Olympics when yeah. Eric Hyden won whatever. And yeah, 1980. I mean, it was medals and there was a lot of interest in Winter Olympics at the time, so that's why they went For the only time in American history. And apparently horny figure skaters. But, I, you know, I think at that point in time, he's going, he's trying to track down Locke to find out who hired Locke, and Locke has gone to the Snowy Alps. He wasn't trying to track down the ATAC. He was trying to find Locke at that particular point in time. Who just happened to be there. And the chick from Ice Castles, man, she isn't. She's an annoying bitch. Oh, she's not a good actress. So. Terrible. I, I mean, guess she is like a professional. Yeah, she was a professional skater. The Tanya Harding of her time, I guess. The uh, the two other female leads are also the Milena character. I think that actress was terrible. I mean, she's got the look, and that's about all she had to it. But Bond women at, at that point, point look, time, she had steel. blue steel. So, but it's interesting. You you sit here and point. You know, like you like Casino Royale. Yeah. And although Casino Royale's, I mean, the James Bond films have now evolved into much more action-oriented films, where back then they were more kind of suspense, they were more spy thrillers than action. They had the same reasoning be- behind the design of this film as they did with Casino Royale. We want to take James Bond back to basics. We want to get rid of a lot of the gadgets in these over-the-top storylines. This is coming out of Moonraker, was the, mo- the movie before this, where he went to space. But instead of unbelievable gadgets, they do unbelievable sequences, a la the skiing, the hockey, him on a tr- uh, Zamboni, who ends up taking out this dude. Uh, this yeah, that, that, hockey, that whole hockey rig sequence didn't have to be there at all. It was not important no. to the story. And I don't even understand why they included it. That yeah, exactly. go on ice. Because America they want to. ice. We beat the commies. Beat the, the right. Soviet Reds. And they're not going to get this sunken typewriter either. <laughs> we'll beat him. That'll be another miracle. The the gadgets, if that's what they were getting away from, but they don't really have him fighting ever. Like That's what I like about Casino Royale is they have the James Bond character fighting and kind of be more physical. Judo chop. <laughs> but they replace it with these just ridiculous chase sequences and the, and the shark. Uh, Whoa. Well, I like the shark scene. Yeah, all right. I like the sharks. I don't mind the sharks. They're dragging him around, and somehow there's it's. There are two different times where the rope isn't isn't tight, so he can cut it on some coral. The yacht had to turn around, and yet the other dude, this guy's bleeding. James Bond's bleeding in his back from being drugged through the coral, right? And the sharks just kind of like, I don't like those people there. And then the one guy gets knocked in, the henchman gets knocked in, and those sharks just go right for him. Not the bloody guy in the water. British food is. You know, kind of bland. Italian food's better. They eat fish and chips. They should be going after those bastards. I will get you for eating all my all my friends. I love the sharks too. I I think it's pretty cool that 
Well, first of all, they're using a, a real tiger shark. And, and of all the sharks to use, you would think that that would be one of the, the last ones you'd want to use. I yeah, mean, those are aggressive. They're very aggressive. and They'll eat anything. Right. And But apparently, you know, you, they had these shark wranglers, these people that would actually volunteer and get paid pretty good money to, to bring these sharks in and, and put people in what, what seems peril. But uh, sharks have this weird metabolism thing where if you get them worked up enough, they'll just go into like this torpid state, this numb, listless state. And that's when they'll film them and they'll steer them where they want them to go and they'll keep swimming in a straight line. And then they'll film them and they'll look like they're about to eat someone. But, well, I guess they could still if they awaken from their slumber a little sooner than, than later. And then after that film takes place, the shark will wake up and they'll swim off. And then the, the low man on the totem pole has to go and catch the shark and bring him back and, I guess, get him worked up again so he'll go back in that torpid state. I wonder what state. they do to get them worked up. They show him this movie. <laughs> it puts me in that torpid state. <laughs> but Blue Steel was never actually in the water. No, she's never in the water. They show her in the water. I no, saw it. It's a special effect. Special effect. How would you do that? Don't even know what they did. A studio and a powerful fan. Yeah. And yeah, then they add the bubbles. Yeah. They add the bubbles digitally. The bubbles. <laughs> Why wasn't she able to be in the be in the water, underwater? There's a lot of parts in here that's underwater. Yeah, she had some sort of sinus condition that prevented her from uh, diving. Which, I, and acting. Yeah. I think the real reason is she's French. It's kind of interesting that they write a role and cast it with an actress who can't go underwater. So, And she's not such a big name that you couldn't replace her with a, a number of different countless act- actresses right and then also they have roger moore who's afraid of heights and they write a sequence where he's got to climb a cliff you know his character does and maybe they're just messing with him at this point climb that mountain monkey which by the way i thought that was probably one of the better sequences the climbing yeah that was that was fine i, I do agree with you the the uh, snow sequence went on a little too long but i thought the little. and the underwater sequence and the boat dragging sequence and the warehouse sequence and this sequence that I thought there were some good action sequences in the film more so than most other James Bond films Ooh. but there was a lot of talky talky throughout the rest where they're not really doing anything not developing or, anything yeah that I, I do agree with you that once Milena is introduced it in the story that they should have gone to the right boat to, you know if you're if you're trying to find this device why are you going off chasing this other guy who's just hiring someone to kill the Havelocks and not well, trying to find the ATAC itself. Because we learned one thing in this movie. Greek women always avenge their loved ones. I think lots of plays were written about that hundreds of years ago. As you know, as unpopular as this film seems to be at this table right now, this was actually a huge success for the Bond franchise. This was the third highest grossing film. Yeah. Uh, it played uh, in nursing homes across the nation. Yeah. There was another scene where that Eric dude, the, the, the world famous Eric Krigler, <laughs> riding his motorcycle through the snow and so then he wrecks it, and he picks the motorcycle up, and he heaves it at Roger Moore for like, like 20 feet. Das der Kriegler. <laughs> I did not like the underwater sequences. They're supposed to be very deep under the water. <laughs> you, you can see the sunshine coming through. But I thought at the beginning they say, well, how deep is it? And they're like, well, it's not that deep. Well, they said not deep enough, oh, which means someone could go down and get someone it. Someone could retrieve if it. If they in, have nitrogen and oxygen. In mini subs and special suits. Well, and then Blue Steel has the foresight to leave her filled air tank at the bottom of the at the ocean floor for no just reason, for you know, because she might need it, and it does come in handy later. But this this was a, a real popular movie at the time. I, I what I remember was the song. The song was really popular. I think it was on number four. Yeah, it went to number four. It was Oscar nominated for best song. But it seems like to, it was on the radio all the time. It lost to uh, Arthur's theme. I, I love Arthur's theme. Love Christopher Cross. <laughs> wow, that's some heavy competition there. 
right to the top hey, of the adult contemporary if you, chart. If I'm you pretty sure get, I've heard both songs while having my teeth drilled. <laughs> if you ever get caught between the moon and New York City, shoot yourself. <laughs> it was the eighth highest grossing film of the year. Uh, it was just behind Cannonball Run. And it, just, it made a ton of money overseas. Yeah, it, it, well, the Bond movies always do well overseas, so it, it made a lot of money overseas. At the time, it was the number three highest grossing Bond film behind Moonraker and Thunderball. Well, talk about the music. The Four Your Eyes Only was was popular, but other than that, all the music in the film is crappy porno okay. disco. Yeah, it's it was done by Bill Conti, which John Barry did most of the James Bond films, but didn't do it for some reason in this particular and film. It, it's so awkward. It's off putting as you're watching it just to hear the bounce, the the disco, the crappy disco. And in '81, and you want to be all hip. I, I mean, it, isn't it, disco over at this point? Yeah, because <clears throat> the song For Your Eyes Only was really hip. I mean, look at what they did with James Bond. Here he drives a Lotus, he knows fine wine, and he wears a Seiko. I mean, they're putting together yeah. a lot of hot pockets. He doesn't have a martini in this entire film. No, he doesn't stop for a drink. It will kill him. Right, because the red wine's good for his yeah. heart. Well, Greg, you were talking about some of the reviews of the film when it debuted in 1981. You look back and actually read some of what, what the critics were saying. And what were they saying? Yeah, and it was, it was <laughs> by, the, by, by and large, the critics thought this was a pretty good movie they then it got garnered favorable reviews and just like patrick said earlier that they felt that this was a, a james bond movie that was more gritty and real and you know they were eliminating the the reliance on the special effects and gadgets and focusing on roger moore's physique and <laughs> right and and i remember prowess. one critical prowess one critic in particular was remarking about how mature James Bond had become, and I, and I thought well, he, he mean, meant aged, <laughs> right? And they were talking about he now has a world weariness. Roger Moore playing James Bond, and again, I'm thinking that's that's confusing shortness of breath with world weariness. I yeah. mean, the poor old man had to hike up that hill a lot. Well, do you think a lot of part of this is coming out? Of the Roger Moore films are always considered some of the weakest films of the entire series, and Moonraker, I think, was the film just preceding this was the worst of all the entire, all the James Bond films. Do you think it was more of a that hey, this is a lot better than that last piece of shit? I I think so, and it may have been these were critics that had been doing it a long time, and maybe they thought it was a little more nostalgic for the Sean Connery, the early movies that that did try to build suspense with... You can see it from the critics' point of view that if they just stepped in a bunch of elephant shit, got out of it, and then stepped in dog shit, they go, whew, at least it wasn't elephant shit. <laughs> well, I was interested in looking at the other movies that came out at the same time as For Your Eyes Only. It came out in June, like the third weekend in June. Um, and the other films that are out that way, what, do you remember some of them, Patrick? Raiders of the Lost Ark, Superman. Never heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> Cannonball Run, Stripes, Clash of the Titans... History of the World Part 1, Great Muppet Caper, and Escape from New York were all the films that were... And all better movies than this. Yeah, but I look at this collection of films that are The out Great Muppet weekend. Caper was more believable to me than this film. Yeah, The Empire Strikes Back of the Muppet Trilogy. But you look at the collection of films that are out in the movie theaters at this time, that's a pretty good collection. You think, wow, that's, Hollywood does it right. Hollywood has a lot of good ideas, and there's some interesting films out there. I mean, one through ten, basically, all pretty good, all worth watching at some point and, and is remembered. And then you look at it today, or, or rather, you look at it at the same time, June, the third weekend in June of uh, 2011, and you've got Green Lantern, 
Cars 2, Kung Fu Panda 2, uh, Hangover 2, Hangover 2, Bridesmaids. I mean, the collection, the, the difference between what was going on in Hollywood in 81 versus what's going on now is is clear. I know we talk about it all the time. Remakes and, and sequels are the only thing that's done anymore as a result. This is why we're doing this podcast is because the movies back in the 80s were just simply much better because they Hollywood has lost its... Not this one. Hollywood has lost its soul and has lost its creativity, clearly. But I agree with you. This is the worst film that, of that collection that was just that was just talked about. But I mean, we'll be a better judge of it in thirty years to see which one of these films lasts. I don't think a lot of them will, but you never know. That at the time, a lot of these films were mildly successful. But you know, who who would know that Clash of the Titans would get remade thirty years later and have an extended life? Yeah, know? I don't see them remaking Hangover Two or Cars Two. You know, we need to remake that one. No, I don't think they'll remake it, but they may still be popular. You know, who knows what 30 years is going to make. Who thought 30 years ago that Blade Runner would still be as well known as it is now? Or 16 Candles for that for that matter. They're, they're still more, they're more popular now than they were in their time. The geeks are rising. Anything else on this film? This film makes Austin Powers that much funnier. No, I think Austin Powers, I think Austin Powers changed the James Bond series is that these overly elaborate ways of killing james bond that even in this film that oh we're going to i'm going to put you in a helicopter instead of crashing that motherfucking helicopter straight in the ground i'm going to sit and talk to you for five minutes and give you a chance to get away oh instead of shooting you in the head i'm going to drag you behind my boat and hope that maybe a shark might come along and eat you or you'll drown i mean it just maybe yeah there is even on the even on the mountain yeah the guy should should have just cut the rope so. Right. I'm going to knock each one of these down and put myself in danger by climbing down this mountain to knock each pin out. That's something you don't see in the Casino Royale or uh, Quantum of Solace as much. Which, as, which Quantum of Solace is also a pile of shit. But that's something that has changed in the James Bond films, that they don't have these over-elaborate ways of killing them. Right. Instead, they sit him in a seatless chair and start going to town on his balls. Yeah, they're torturing him. So Scott, you just don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't remember seeing this in the 80s. I remember my family. It seems like it seems like my family saw it in the 80s, and this was one of the popular ones. And my brothers are into James Bond. I never really have been other than specific ones that I think are particularly good. But I, it was painful to get through. I thought it was boring. I thought it was long. And I think it's extremely dated, not just with the music and these other things, but the, the non-realistic nature of the of the chase scenes and all that. I This film is dated and does isn't coherent, and stay away from this one. Bond people... This is my call out to the Bond people of Hollywood. You've immediately got $100 million that are going to be made on every one of these effing films just because you put James Bond in it. So find another story and then add the James Bond and the air, sea, road, water sequences and the Bond girls, and you, you'll make even more. Uh, I don't particularly remember seeing this movie all the way through when I was a kid. Uh, they all seem to blend together. All those Roger Moore movies uh, when he's James Bond. I guess I've seen him one. I've seen them all. Yeah. Type aspect. But this was aptly named for your eyes only. And I hope it stays for your eyes only because I never want to sit through this piece of shit again. I have a vague memory of this as a kid. Like Jason, I think a lot of those Roger Moore Bond movies kind of blended together. Except the one with Grace Jones. She's hot. Yeah, I do remember A View to the Kill a lot better th- than this one. But that's probably because I was older. Duran Duran. Yeah. Yeah. Christopher Walken. And anyway, I... Oh, that's right. I don't think this movie stands the test of time, I, I think. But then again, I I don't... I didn't inherit the 007 gene. I, I'm not a big James Bond fan, never have been. But I know that there are a lot of people who are. So 
and Patrick is one of those, so I, I guess he's the authority on whether this still stands the test of time or whether this kind of movie has you know been surpassed by by modern filmmaking technology and well better actors i saw this on hbo it was one of my the hbo constant repeat films i, I probably saw it 15 20 times because it was on for years and years you uh, poor guy <laughs> i actually back that's in, like being sit, sitting in a seatless chair getting whipped over and over again with your balls i actually re- in your balls not with your balls yeah. I actually well, you could whip Roger Moore's balls <laughs> in the seatless chair because they hang so low because he's old. I actually enjoyed it a lot back then, and as com- and I think I did it in comparison to the other Roger Moore films that I had seen. I hadn't even seen them all at that point in time, but I didn't enjoy the other Roger Moore films as much as I enjoyed this one. I think this is the best of his his run is as as James Bond. Favorite Roger Moore? This, this is, is your favorite Roger Moore? This would be my favorite Roger Moore film. That and Cannonball 2. Cannonball Run 2. <laughs> I do like him in Cannonball Run. Was he in Cannonball Run 2? He was in Cannonball yeah. Run 2. No, he's in the first one. I know that. Is he in the sequel? I thought he was just in the sequel. No, he's only in the sequel. No, he's only in the first. I know he's in the first one. He's basically playing James Bond. That's so. what I thought he was doing in the second one. No, I think you got him confused. He's in the first one. I don't know if he's in the second one. Hmm. So... But anyways, it was my favorite of the Roger Moore series, but the Roger Moore series is my least favorite of all the uh, James Bonds. I don't think this stands the test of time. I agree with uh, you know Matt as far as the music is extremely dated. Even you know the obviously the outfits are very much of the '80s. The James Bond series has always kind of evolved as kind of the culture has evolved, and Bond series is evolved into a much more action oriented. And I think better series, uh, more exciting for the viewer. This film was way over long, and I I don't think it holds up in comparison to today's James Bond with Daniel Craig, or even with the Pierce Brosnan James Bond. Or even some of the Sean Connery ones, which are dated visually, but they're not dated. I honestly think it's right there with some... I wouldn't put it up there with like Goldfinger or uh, From Russia With Love, although I think From Russia With Love is probably... You would probably watch it now and think it's extremely, extremely slow and kind of boring because not much happens in it. But it's... It is a dated film. I don't think it stands the test of time. I don't think someone who's coming to the James Bond franchise now, and as, as Greg said, I am I am a fan of the James Bond series. I own them all. I've watched them all many times. Um, if I was to have to watch a Roger Moore film, this is the one I'm going to pick. But that's because Oof. the other ones. I'll pick. We'll do Moonraker sometime. Oh, you it, son it, of a bitch. <laughs> so, man, you want to see bad, you'll be going, let me watch For Your Eyes Only oh. again, please. It is it's a little more entertaining and a little more a little bit more believable i like the kind of stripped down james bond of being less gadgets and not relying on technology as much which is why i like casino royale probably why you like casino royale a little bit more There's don't no, speak for me okay <laughs> but no i do not think it stands the test of time i'll get it dennis hello mr bond on the line prime minister Ah, Mr. Bond. I wanted to call you personally and to say how pleased we all are that your mission was a success. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Don't thank me, Mr. Bond. Your courage and resourcefulness are a credit to the nation. Dennis and I look forward to meeting you. Meanwhile, if there is anything I can do for you... Give us a kiss. Give us a kiss. Well, really, Mr. Bond. <laughs> All right, don't go see this film. Don't rewatch this. Don't rewatch this film. If you're gonna all avoid it. All right, keep listening. We got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited. 
before your eyes open down. This podcast is not endorsed by Eon Productions or Sony Pictures and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. For Your Eyes Only, all names and sounds of For Your Eyes Only characters and any other For Your Eyes Only related items are registered trademarks and or copyrights of Eon Productions and Sony Pictures or their respective trademark and or copyright holders. Our original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.